There are some. It's, it's, it's the source of many a feuds at Christmas time, isn't it? That's how we remember it. The, the, the game of Monopoly is very, very simple. It is essentially to build yourself an empire and bankrupt all your competitors, right? And it's great. And one of the main things, though, that can get in the way of you being able to build your empire and bankrupt your competitors is what? Well, it's that top right corner, isn't it? That man with his finger. Go to jail. You know how it feels. There is a tension when you're at the strand and you have nine spaces And you know that if you roll a dice, you're in jail and it's not going to go well. Right? But that tension is gone when you have what in your possession? Get out of jail cards. Get out of jail free card. No, you're on the strand and you think, ha, I can roll whatever I want. I can roll freely here. And I can just saunter on past. And sure, I'll buy Mayfair, etc. All those things. What a difference it makes when you're playing Monopoly, when you have that get out of jail free card. There's no fear of that judicial punishment when you approach that corner. It's a blessed thing. (laughs) Well, the reason I start with that illustration is to highlight, highlight something for us that sometimes Christians can use the grace of God as some kind of get out of jail free card. Where when it comes to living out our lives, an attention point happens when we have perhaps both the opportunity and the desire to sin presenting themselves, we can sometimes say, well, I can go ahead and sin here because, well, because I'm free by his grace. God will forgive me. Have you ever thought that? Some use Christian freedom and the grace of God God, like this get out of jail free card when approaching this opportunity to sin. And and there was a chap I knew in Dundee called Greg. I'll call him Greg. That's not his name. Now, Now, Greg was brought up in the church. He's been going to church basically since he was an embryo. Okay. His his mum and dad had gone to church the whole time. He went to church. He pretty much graduated from Sunday school. When he was older and had a job for himself, having completed uni, he would be in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. He would be at the Bible study, the young person's Bible study, on a Monday night without fail. But on Friday nights, no one really knew where he was. Uh, Even his wife didn't actually know if he was going to come home. You see, he lived almost this double life, a life where he sought to do Christian-y things, like go to church and so on, and yet, at various other points, thought that because of God's grace, because God would forgive him, he effectively had a license to do what he wanted to do the rest of the time. And he once told me that when, in those moments of temptation, when the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin were present. The thing that most often tipped him over the edge, if you like, into that temptation wasn't just the power or the strength of the desire that was driving it, though that's not insignificant. No, he said to me, it was the thought that God is good and God is gracious 
and he must forgive me. That's one particular occurrence. And you might think, well, I'm not going out drinking every Friday night or in, indulging in sexual immorality every Friday night. But I don't think that's... I think this kind of abuse of God's grace can for us consciously, willfully be almost an everyday occurrence for us. I mean, to give you a personal example, uh, Catherine and I have been trying to eat healthily. So everything that's been coming into my house just now has been fat-free, sugar-free, and taste-free. Okay? Now, I had a weak moment on Wednesday, okay? And uh, we've been encouraging one another by asking things like, did you eat anything unhealthy today? And on Wednesday evening when I went home, Catherine said, have you eaten anything unhealthy today? Opportunity to sin and desire to sin. Uh, I didn't want her to think bad of me for the fact that I walked past Wilfitts, actually walked into Wilfitts and had a bacon roll. Okay? And, and, and what's pushing me over the edge there? It's certainly I want to sin because I don't want to look bad. But I have to confess, even in preparation of a message like this, the thoughts of he gives more grace from James chapter 4, surprisingly popping into my head. Are we free to abuse God's grace in this way? Is this what Christ went to the cross for? To give us a license for sin? Have you found yourself in those kinds of situations? What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5 and have a look. Galatians chapter 5. We'll read from verse 13. And before we pray, uh, before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. uh, That it penetrates deep into our very hearts. uh, Showing us what is right, showing us where we are wrong. And we pray that tonight you would challenge us where we need challenged. And encourage us where we need encouraged. Comfort us where we need comforted. And lead us to Jesus, we pray. It's in his name, indeed, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So Galatians chapter 5, reading from verse 13. Uh, Paul writing, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, can anyone remember, remind me of the main point of Galatians? Or even a verse which points us to, in, in short, in nutshell form, the main point of Galatians? Galatians 2.16, why don't you flick back there with me? Starting with 15, if you like, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified, that is made right with God by observing the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's whole point in the first two chapters of setting up for for them, this is what the gospel is. It's of divine origin. It has divine power. This is the gospel. Don't change it. Don't play with it. And then in chapters 3 and 4, reinforcing for them, don't add to the gospel in particular. There's nothing you can do to add to it. It is not Jesus plus something else that makes you right with God. It's just faith in Jesus Christ that makes you right with God. It's a free gift of grace. It's received when you believe in Jesus Christ. And one of Paul's main refrains constantly, repeatedly, you are not under law, you are under grace. So if you were reading that letter for the first time, think of yourself in warm Greece. Thinking through uh, warm Galatia, Turkey region. What would you be thinking? You're not under law, but under grace. You've been committing acts that are observing the law, keeping religious feasts and so on. What might you be tempted to do? Well, the pendulum might just swing to the other end and think, well, if I'm not under law, does that mean I'm free from any kind of constraints or restraints? Am I free then to do what I want to do? I mean, after all, we could say, if you look back at the start of chapter 5, doesn't Paul say, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is reaffirming, you are not under law, you are under grace. You are not enslaved by the law, but you're free. That might be the cultural view of freedom, of course. Freedom from constraint, freedom from restraint. I can do whatever I want to do. And the people who tend to say that think of Christianity as being something that is slavish and constraining. They see it as restrictive. You don't get to do what you want. The cultural view of freedom then is you can do whatever you want to do. 
But Paul comes in here and tries to rule out any misunderstanding and to stop that pendulum in its tracks from swinging from legalism and law-keeping on one side as a way to make yourself right with God and another erroneous view of thinking that you have license to do whatever you please because of God's grace. Christian freedom then. Now get this, okay? Christian freedom, as Paul defines it here, is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what is right. In other words, it's not freedom from all kind of constraints. It's actually freedom to do what God calls you to do. So to those who say, am I free to do what I want? Paul says in verse 13, look with me. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So, okay, Christians, you're called to be free. Free from the curse of the law. That removes the guilt. Free from the penalty of the law. That removes death from you. Free to approach God with a knowledge of his faithful love and his gracious acceptance of you. That's privilege. But Paul's point is, yes, you're free. You're called to that. But don't abuse that freedom for self-indulgence. And he reminds us, of course, of the reality of the sinful nature, which we'll get to. It's a present reality for believers, even though we are saved and forgiven of our sin. The sinful nature remains, and we will not be free of it until that day when we see Christ face to face in glory. But you see here, Paul says, don't abuse your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The word indulge there is translated really opportunity. It's like a military word for a base of operations. So do not use your freedom as a base of operations for your sinful lives. Don't use your freedom as a vantage point where you know what is right, you know what is wrong, you know you have God's grace in your possession. You know you have the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart and yet from your vantage point, from what you know and from what you see, from your base of operations, you use that as a platform for sin. Do you think God looks on that favorably? God's grace is abused when it becomes a platform for sin. And the irony of it is that when people think that they are free in that, and free even as they sin, they're not actually free as they sin. Jesus said something to that effect. John 8, 34. Anyone who sins is what? Free? Free to do what you want? No. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. You're just enslaved by whatever it is you are fulfilling and running after in terms of your passions and your desires. You think you maybe are in control or that you are mastering it, but the truth is, as you give your life to that thing, as you make sacrifices for that thing, it is the master of you. And I wonder if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, if you have that view of the kind of things that that are sinful, like we were reading in our passage. You feel, no doubt, like you're a master of these things. But the Bible reorientates your thinking in that and, and presents to you the truth to help you realize, actually, you're enslaved to these things. They are your master. You run after them. 
that thing, think, even if you're here, think of something that you love doing so much that you know is sinful even in the eyes of God. It might be the pursuit of money. It might be the pursuit of power. It might be just the pursuit of sexual self-indulgence. And if I asked you to give that up right now in your own strength, your heart might beat a little bit faster. You might worry a little bit about what your life might look like without these things. That's because you're enslaved to these things. And they have a bigger, tighter grip on us than we realize. I I hope you'll keep listening. Because I think this text provides something of an answer for us as to how we deal with those things. But Paul is saying Christian freedom is not freedom for self-indulgence. It's actually freedom for self-sacrifice. It's freedom for self-sacrifice. You see what he says at the end of verse 13? Do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, instead, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see that word serve in there in verse 13? Serve one another in love. The Greek word is a root word referring to slave. So do not use your freedom for self-indulgence. Instead, recognize that in your Christian freedom, you are to become the slave of others. Your Christian freedom is not for your own self-indulgence. There's a purpose to it that is way better than just trying to be self-serving. You become a servant of God. You become a servant of others. And what Paul is telling us is that Christian freedom is not self-indulging. It's self-effacing. It enables us to be free from self-interest, to forget about ourselves, and to truly know what it is to love. Love sacrificially by serving other people and seeking other people's good. Our individual Christian freedom, if you like, you could say, is for the benefit even of the Christian community. This is where belonging to a church is so important. And it's almost surprising, actually, that Paul introduces this at this point where he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It's a fascinating thing for him to bring in at this point. Our loving service of one another is what we're saved for. It's part of what we're saved for. But actually, that love, that being together is threatened by our sinful nature and by our self-centeredness. In other words, we chew each other up to promote our own self-interest. Sometimes in subtle ways. It's not always in the argy-bargy of fights. I love watching David Attenborough uh, documentaries. You know those wildlife programs? I've loved those ever since I was a kid. I don't know, there's something someone to quite enjoy about watching lions and antelopes and you know where it's going and, and sometimes I think that Christians in community can behave almost like animals and here's what I mean by this when you watch those documentaries you see an almost a, a negative progression of what happens you see for instance the lion chasing the antelope and it bites the antelope normally around the neck so in other words it goes in for the kill okay And then what you see is that lion basically chewing on the carcass. And then what you see, with a bit of fast-forwarding, is 
that it doesn't stop until there's nothing left on that boat. Well, I think what Paul is trying to highlight for us, even here, saying if you keep on biting and devouring, that is chewing on each other, you need to watch out. You need to watch out because you're going to consume each other. And actually, the word destroyed there is, is literally the word consume in Greek. We gulp each other down until there's nothing left. We are so self-interested, you understand, that we will pursue our own benefit, our own self-promotion to the detriment of others. And we need to be very watchful of that, Paul says. But instead, we are called to love. This is what true Christian freedom is. It's not freedom from the law, but actually fulfillment of this law, to love without the fear of punishment. And we mustn't misunderstand what Paul is saying here as he talks about the law. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. I thought you said we're not under law. Well, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. It's wrong to rely on law as the way of being made right with God. That won't work. That's why Paul talks about in chapter 3 and verse 13, the curse of the law. Or in 3.23 of how we are imprisoned by the law, locked up until faith is revealed. But it's not that God's law is discarded. The law is good, for the law is of God. And it's given to the people of God for a purpose. It's wrong to rely on the works of the law in order to make yourself right with God, in order to present yourself before him and just say, yeah, here's what I've done. You've got to let me in now. But even though we're not under law, it doesn't mean we discard it entirely. We would still want to use it and benefit from it as God's wise instruction to us. So as Tim Keller has famously said, it's not, the Christian life is not, I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's empty religion. It's God accepts me, therefore I obey. In other words, motivated by love and motivated by the assurance that I am his and I'm captivated by his grace, I can love. I can, by his grace and by the help of his spirit, serve others in love. You see, the law is what drives us to Christ, as chapter 3, verse 24 says. And once we are in Christ, this law can then show us how we live for God. I love this quote from Spurgeon, who says, What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so, he says. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under law, remember, under grace. Law is merely the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. I wonder how you're doing with this struggle with self-indulgence. I wonder how you're struggling with these temptations when the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin present themselves. When perhaps you're tempted to be tipped over the edge by the thought, God is gracious, he will forgive me. Therefore, I can do this anyway. 
It's not easy to be so self-forgetful, is it? Psychoanalysts have conducted huge amounts of research on this kind of thing and come up with a a common statistic that human beings think of themselves 80% of the time. And it can be a really unnerving thing to consider. How can I be so self-forgetful? I struggle with a sinful nature regularly and at various levels. It can be quite an unnerving thing to consider. And Martin Luther himself, who wrote a commentary in Galatians, said this, despite his attempts to live a godly life, there were times when he said that he committed very fleshly sins, maybe having some doubts. And he found at times his sinful nature caused him to question his own salvation. And I wonder if your sinfulness can sometimes cause you to question yours. Well, I think this next section in Galatians will serve as well. Let's look at verses 16 to 18 and see. Actually, the, the Bible present the reality of the kind of conflict that's going on in our hearts as these verses describe what we might call the civil war of our souls. And civil war, of course, is, is when it's not two nations fighting against each other. It's two organized groups tend to be within that, within a nation or our region Uh, fight each other. And similarly, this Christian life is one of inner conflict. When we believe in God, we are assured that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We know that because we know conviction of sin. We see changes in our lives. We see growth in holiness. But the reality of our daily lives is that sometimes, as we know, we sometimes give in to these sinful desires. And we see in verse 17 that this sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature so we see conflict conflict so what should we expect even in this conflict well the truth of the matter is we should see victory in many respects but we will see that we lose some of the battles some of the time That's the reality that's presented before us. And Luther again used to preach verse 17 to himself to remind himself that he would never be completely without sin because he still has a sinful nature. So this war that is going on in our hearts, the Bible presents it just as a simple reality to say, this is what your Christian life is going to look like until the new heaven and new earth. Luther said, you will always be aware of this conflict, but do not despair Fight back and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, how do we do that? Well, we, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is in us, dwells in us and leads us and guides us. In every respect, as we follow him, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh and live in self-indulgence. Day by day, as we walk in the pursuit of holiness, we should find ourselves growing in holiness. And our flesh even subdued, but it's not easy. 
This is not a task where you enter into it if you like wearing Bermuda shorts and a straw hat and something along in your sandals. No, you need your khakis, your combats, you need a helmet. This is hard work. Okay? And Paul anticipates the question here. Okay, how do I know? If I have to keep in step with the Spirit, if this conflict is a daily reality for me, but yet I'm not to indulge in this sinful nature... And use this freedom as an opportunity to sin. How do I know whether I'm sinning or whether I'm keeping in step with the Spirit? I don't hear his voice. How do we know? What do we do? Well, Paul's answer is for us, it's obvious. It's obvious. It's discernible. It's not rocket science. This is what Paul goes on to talk about. As he sets up for us this contrast of the Sinful, the acts of the sinful nature and the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to picture this act of the sinful nature as a thorn bush, okay? It's, some, it's not something that's going to bear fruit, okay? But it's thorny and it's dry, it's arid, it's, it's dead, okay? That's the image I want you to have. And in verse 19, Paul says that the acts of the sinful nature are plain. They are obvious. In other words, you can see them a mile off. And as we look through verses 19 to 21. I think John Stott helpfully categorizes some of these things into four realms, though it's not an exhaustive list. There there is a sexual realm where sexual relations outside of marriage, the marriage of one man, one woman, that's an act of the sinful nature, where impurity and debauchery mentioned here refer to basically flagrant indecency. It's not even something that's, that's kept hidden. It's something that's overt, almost public. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and then in the religious realm, idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry is quite simply exchanging God as God and putting something else in his place. It doesn't need to be some kind of man-made image or a deity from some kind of other religion. It's most often actually yourself or money or sex or power or the like. And sorcery, of course, being that secret tampering with powers of evil. Paul is saying those things are obvious manifestations of the sinful nature. And even in a societal realm, thirdly, of, of these hatred. Have you ever find yourself hating anyone? A discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Do you get angry sometimes? Do you get angry at silly things sometimes? Selfish ambition. Do you find you put your needs before other people's? Dissensions, factions, envy. You notice the common theme in those eight things, all related to relationships and things that will break down relationships. That is work against the very love that we are called to earlier in the chapter. And then fourthly, really, what can only be called a drunk in this realm. It's just people getting drunk together with others to indulge in any of the above. So there's a thorn bush that's set up for us. We, do you associate yourself in there? Do you see yourself committing any of those sins? Well, we have, by contrast, this, this 
fruit of the Spirit. The sinful nature producing nothing good, but by contrast, the Spirit bringing about this, this is, is meant to conjure in your mind, I think, natural produce, things that are good for you, things that, are, that will nourish you and be tasty and good. Love and joy and peace. Love for God, love for neighbor. Living in happy contentment with, and at peace with God and neighbor. Patience, kindness, and goodness. Again, those virtues talking about a selfless consideration of others. You're willing to wait for others. You're not going to just get frustrated by them. You're eager to do good for others. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So there's a trustworthiness that can mark your life. A compassion that makes you a joy to speak to. Even a composure. Perhaps in the face of temptation or difficulty. That makes you an encourager of others. Do you find yourself waiting patiently for another person? Let's say on a Sunday morning. As you're in the car. Not hooting your horn. You find yourself uh, being kind to other people. By going out of your way to, to bless them. By giving them a gift or... By assuring them of your prayers or something like that. These are signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We don't do these things of our own accord. But the Spirit works these things in and through us. That we might be a blessing to others. To try and make us just like Jesus. The sinful nature produces nothing good. The Spirit brings about this glorious natural produce that is good. And to that you might say, well, you know, all of this, this contrast, uh, this conflict that we find ourselves in, this putting off, this desire to be self-indulgent, I find it really, really hard. And you would do if you were just on your own, but you're not. You're not. It's not the fruit of our efforts. Though I don't think this passage presents us as being disengaged. It presents us as being very much engaged in what's going on. But the Holy Spirit is at work in those who believe. Because he has truly taken up residence. Pitched his tent with us. Those who believe. And given us this hope and this confident assurance that in this battle, in this conflict, there is victory. Even though at times it may feel like loss, there is a time coming when the battle will truly be over. And the enemy who is currently vanquished, though not gone yet, will one day truly be gone. And sin and temptation will be no more for us so what can you do there are basically two things that are laid up for us here we can either use God's grace as a license as a get out of jail free card to live however we want to live and let it tip us over the edge and let us tip us over the edge into self-indulgence in ways that will fundamentally help us 
chew one another up and destroy community, etc. We can be led by that sinful nature. But we should heed the warning that Paul offers in here in verse 21. Did you see it? Second part of verse 21. I warn you. As I did before. So he's, he's warned them before. That those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's not to say that if you're a Christian and if you sin, you can lose your salvation and go to hell. I think what Paul is referring to here is not an occasional lapse, but that willful, habitual, heart-hardening action. But if, there's, if there is just a point-blank refusal and an enjoyment even in using God's grace as a license for sin, then you might not be a Christian. And those who find themselves following it along with more of the sinful nature that has been described in this passage should heed that warning. And recognize that you're not without hope. Because we can come to Jesus Christ and truly receive that grace of his, that forgiveness from him that we might have life that we might have the spirit to live in us, that through our repenting, our turning from sin to God, from indulging the sinful nature to serving him and serving one another in love, we can have life that is led by the spirit. We can keep in step with the spirit. That's the second thing. You can either be led by the sinful nature here or led by the spirit at the individual level, do you understand that as you're led for the, by the Spirit, there is no condemnation for those who are led by Him? As verse 23 says, when the fruit of the Spirit works, when the Spirit works this fruit in your life against such things, there is no law. There is nothing that condemn love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Nothing. Because it's good. And it's in keeping with God's well, and at the community level, of course, there is this love and this self selfless, sacrificial service that is marked with peace and patience and kindness. Who doesn't want that kind of community? Well, we are called to remember that God's grace is not a license for sin. We are called to remember who it is we belong to. See in verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ, to Christ Jesus. We belong to him. We are not our own, remember. We were bought at a price. Yes, the price of his own blood. A costly sacrifice for him. Yet something he would do for our salvation and for our benefit that we may be holy like him. And that we may know his salvation. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the answer for you. As you feel enslaved and mastered by all these different things. Maybe one or two of them connected with you earlier on in our sermon. You can be free of that mastery. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that he died for your sin. For all the ways in which you have de-godded him and put something else in his place. He'll forgive you for that if you come to him in faith. Believing in him. And in repentance, turning from your sin. Will you do that tonight? 
for those of us who are Christians. We, we belong to him. We do not belong to ourselves, so it's not all about self-indulgence. You see what Paul says here? We who have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. That's a good definition of who we are. Why would you want to indulge in these passions and desires when they have been crucified? Now, earlier on in Galatians 2, 20... Paul was able to say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It was Paul's testimony through the turning from his sin and turning to Christ in faith and repentance that he was crucified with Christ. That truly, everything that was Paul the sinner was condemned and crucified on the cross. And that's true of each and every one of us who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what we do? When it comes to this sinful nature, and where we become almost playful with it, you can imagine, if you like, a sinful nature crucified on a cross. And when people, it's an apt illustration because when people were crucified on a cross back then, death was not immediate. Sometimes it took a long time. But left there, that person would die without doubt. It was very effective means of torture. That's why the Romans used it. But what we do is that we almost get that claw hammer out. And what we want to do is we want to remove the nails. And we want to give our sinful nature a bit of a chance to recuperate so that we can play with it a little bit and enjoy it a little bit. Well, Paul is encouraging us here, I think, that to leave our nature, our sinful nature as crucified. Let it die. Let it die. Don't, don't touch the nails. Don't even come near it. Don't think about pulling that sinful nature down and again indulging sinful desires. Leave it to die. Don't let it recuperate. It will only master you again. So that this week, Whenever you have this vantage point and you have the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin and if the thought comes into your head of God's gracious, he'll forgive you anyway. Remember who it is that lives in you, the Holy Spirit. Who it is that you belong to, Jesus Christ. What you have done with that sinful nature that when you repented from your sin and turned to faith in Jesus Christ, you crucified it, you killed it, and that you must leave it there to die. And pray in the Spirit, asking for God's help, forgive me, strengthen me, that I might stand up under that temptation. You have promised me a way out of this. Show me that way. But don't just pray it. Actively engage in it. And if it's something that presents itself before you, whether it's on a computer screen, shut it down. 
If it's on the TV, turn it off. If it's right in front of you, run away. Flee from sexual sin. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from the acts of the sinful nature. And do not again abuse God's grace. It truly is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But it's not freedom to do what we want. It's freedom to do what is right. And in that he gives us grace. Let's pray together.